You are listening to Muslim in Moderation, discussions on minority culture, identity and politics with Ali Ahmed. Welcome to episode 19 of the podcast, which features Dr. Nida Ahmed, a researcher and executive member of the Muslim Women's Sports Network. Sport plays a crucial role in many people's lives. Playing sport has health and fitness benefits, but other benefits too, like developing leadership skills and bringing communities together. The UN has recognized sport as a human right. Everyone should be allowed to play, and that includes Muslim women. In our conversation, Dr. Ahmed and I discuss community barriers Muslim women face, corporate involvement in Muslim women's sports, policy changes that need to be made, and a little bit about rock climbing and America Ninja Warrior too. But I started by asking her about the external barriers Muslim women face. Here's Dr. Ahmed. With the external barriers, of course, is going to vary by context, by country. You know, for some, yes, it will be the lack of female coaches. In my opinion, that is, I think, applies everywhere. There aren't enough female coaches, especially Muslim women in these coaching positions, slowly getting there. Of course, there's, we've seen a lot of conversations about the hijab, which has impacted their participation in sports. But for me, policy, I would think, is one of the major ones because it has definitely prohibited a lot of Muslim women in taking up sports. And we've seen examples of that with, of course, FIFA and FIBA have done that, which have been overturned. But some of these policies have remained at local and national levels, which has impacted um, their participation. I mean, one of the examples, the recent example is Noor Abukaram, who's a high school runner in Ohio, right? She was disqualified because of her hijab. I'm in France, which is on going, which had recently passed a bill, which is impacting young Muslim women's um, ability to play sports or even everyday life. So policies are definitely a major issue because it prohibits those who do cover. Um, and also it can apply to even uh, women of different ethnicities and races within the Muslim community. So policies, I think, would be the major barriers because they're often placed by men and white men, unfortunately, who are controlling who has access to these spaces. Yeah, I think you can really see that in a sport like yeah. women's volleyball or women's beach volleyball, where the, you know, really revealing uniform is, is part of the dress code and is a big part of how the sport is marketed and sold. But I think more, or, you know, in addition to these external barriers, there are also a lot of barriers within culture and community pressure, you know, pressure from parents. Uh, I knew a, a girl who played high-level soccer and her mom raised this concern about her having bruises on her legs and how that might yes. affect her her marriage prospects. And yeah, can you talk a little bit about these kinds of internal barriers and, and what needs to be done to overcome them? You know, these internal barriers, they're definitely there, right? I can speak to some of my own research from my PhD, which was around how Muslim sports women use social media to self-represent aspects of their life. And, you know, when I interviewed them, a lot of them did speak to their family. Majority of them had very supportive family members. And of course, I'm going to acknowledge for women who do encounter, you know, family pressure, a community pressure to not play sports or not continue sports. The important thing is a lot of these women are having these conversations with their families and navigating it. They're, you know, going back and using um, Islam because a lot of them, they'll, you know, they'll get pressure from the family or parents saying, oh, Islam prohibits that, which is not true, right? So a lot of them have that knowledge and will counteract it using their own culture, even Islam, and having these conversations with their families and they're pushing that narrative out. And there's 
great example, one of my participants who, similar to what you mentioned about one of the women you interviewed, the high-level uh, soccer player, she would played in a combat sport, right? So think of uh, boxing, taekwondo, things like that. And she's an amazing athlete. And the pressure did come from the mom saying, what's going on? You're going to look too masculine. And it wasn't. She is married. She boxes. She works and continues to compete in the sport. But this is a conversation she had over time with her family to kind of, I think part of it, you have to look at why are the parents concerned? Yes, they're concerned about marriage prospects, but a lot of this is deep-roated and they need to change these conversations. And Muslim women are doing that. So these, they're present, these internal barriers are present, but a lot of them are trying to overcome it and navigate it with the tools that they have. Yeah, I, I, I see that there are a lot of really good advocacy groups. I mean, I mean you're part of one of the major advocacy groups for, for Muslim women in sport. Uh, there's a number of initiatives, uh, Hijabi Ballers, for example, is one that's really caught everyone's attention. What can we do to encourage more Muslim girls to join and continue in sport? I think it's representation. So if- for encouragement is I think for a lot of people, if they see someone that looks like them present, it has a huge impact, right? For me growing up, I didn't see a lot of Muslim women, or at least visible, you know, seeing in high performance sports, or even then when I was playing sports, I didn't see them. But now there's a huge, they're present in every sport. You can name it, like surfing, basketball, skateboarding, mountaineering, they're all present there. So for me, it's just uplifting their voices. And that's kind of the work that we do at Muslim Women in Sport Network is amplifying their voices. And when you see someone that looks like you and is representative of your community, of your culture, of your religion, um, there's likelihood of them participating in sports and also for family buy-in as well, right? If it's led by Muslim women, it's it's catered to Muslim women's needs, if it's clothing, if it's culture, if it's having a safe space where it's women-only space, like it was really change the conversation and make it a little more accessible for Muslim women and encourage a lot of them to continue to take to participate in sport and continue to play sport. Sure. Just on that point, at least in, in America and probably true of Canada yes. and maybe the UK as well, uh, girls across cultures tend to give up on sport a lot earlier than boys do. And this is, you know, perhaps for a a variety of reasons that can't be explained by, you know, the particular internal external barriers that we mentioned for Muslim women. So just playing the devil's advocate here, what would you say in response to that claim that, you know, girls just stop playing sports because they aren't as interested in it and it has really nothing to do with religion or culture? I think it's a bit BS because it's a little more complex than that, right? As I mentioned, policy will impact their lack of participation too. It is not necessarily culture. It's not necessarily them getting, they're married or they have kids. As um, you know, one of my participants in my research I've done, who's based in the Middle East, she's challenging that narrative about your life ends. You know, your sporting career ends if you become a mother or if you get married. And she competes at a high level. She is also a coach as well within CrossFit. So she's changing that narrative. So for me, it's people saying that they're not interested in sport at a certain age. I'm ask, I'm going to ask those communities, those organizations to look at what are they doing? Like, are they not providing enough funding for these sports to continue? Are the spaces safe enough for a lot of Muslim women to continue? Do they have the right training? Um, and again, just as you mentioned, like it grows across cultures. Like we've seen this, we've seen that 
women are kind of women in sports, everything's put last. But a lot of them are amazing. Just look at the U.S. soccer team, football team, you know, phenomenal athletes, more than our men's football team, right? Like they won all these World Cups. So we really need to invest women, invest in their training, invest in supporting them, uplifting them. And it can't be that they're just uninterested if the family and culture is, I think it's more nuanced. And a lot of it is barriers, these external barriers that allow them to, um, that kind of prohibits them to continue on playing sports or achieving high level sports, whatever they're interested in. It is a complicated subject and yes. a lot of reasons why things happen. Uh, just changing gears here, I wonder yes. if we could talk about the corporate response to or corporate reaction for Muslim women in sport. I think the last several years, Nike has gained a lot of publicity over its the Nike job, which which I think was debuted in 2017. You know, the Toronto Raptors basketball team came out with a Raptors branded hijab. Do you think the corporations are catering sufficiently to Muslim women? Have they been slow? Is there more that they need to do? They have been slow. I mean, they're finally catching up, right? And they still need to do more because before there was Nike hijab and some, I think Under Armour has one. And there's all these other brands that are kind of jumping on the bandwagon. There was Capsters who had been creating these sports hijabs for Muslim women for a long time and catered to a specific sport. So basketball had a specific, football, soccer had a specific name it. They've been doing that. And same with the Burkini just to access swim spaces if it's surfing or swimming, which was created by Ahed Zaniri, who's in, an Australian Muslim woman, kind of creating these modest wear. And Nike just recently launched these uh, the hijab. Again, it's great, um, but I think it's important for them to acknowledge that there was Muslim women that were created these sporting technologies to ensure that the community members could take part in sports and uh, in and that applied to their modest, you know, modesty, whatever they practice, if it's wearing a hijab or they prefer something long sleeve, that they created this opportunity for Muslim women. And a lot of these corporate um, organizations are joining on now. Part of it is they found a market, you know, where they can gain funds. But I think they still need to do a lot more. They still need to have conversations about accessibility and inclusivity that goes beyond the hijab. Yeah, I think I have that concern as well, because, you know, in terms yeah. of the conversation we've had, we've kind of focused a lot about uh, on the hijab and, and yeah. modesty in terms of dress. But I think obviously there's other issues that Muslim women face in terms of barriers. And I think we kind of touched on that a little bit. And But I do feel uh, I'm at risk of being perhaps a little bit reductive in, in this discussion yeah. saying, well, it's just about hijabs. It's just about yeah. clothes, right? It has to be something more than that. Exactly. No, definitely. It has to be more. And, I, you know, Muslim women are diverse. You know, it's not just the clothing. There's Muslim women that don't cover. There's different races, ethnicity, sexuality. We have to keep all of these conversations in mind. So it can't always focus on the hijab. But I think a lot of people tend to focus on the hijab because of the hyper visibility, the visibility of Muslim women, especially when they enter kind of these high, you know, these visual spaces of the Olympics or uh, World Cup or any of these competitions. It's the visibility people have these conversations and people need to step back and actually look at the other aspects of what it means to be a Muslim woman and not to focus on that because there's other barriers that prohibit Muslim women to taking part in sports, like a race issues of race like black black Muslim women are often excluded as well so really having these conversations that are more than the clothing and more around cultural and inclusion and ethnicity and really getting into the nitty-gritty of how these spaces can be more exclusive for every Muslim woman out there.
I have a daughter as well. And uh, just trying to keep her active and engaged is a challenge. I mean, uh, I've got her into rock climbing because, you know, she had an experience with with playing basketball uh, when she was, you know, about nine years old in a co-ed basketball league. And there was a turnover. And then one of the boys who was on her team was like, oh, you're you're not good at basketball or you suck or Mm. something like that. And uh, and then she's like, I don't want to play anymore. That really doesn't have anything to do with her culture or or her oh. religion or anything like that, but it's just a function of that the only basketball available for her is a co-ed basketball. I mean, I understand. I've had that too growing up. I'm, that's why I've, I think I played a lot more multi-sports growing up. It's just when I haven't felt safe, I'm just like, okay, I'm going to go to a next sport. <laughs> I will be included, um, be part of a community. I think there's a lot of uh, or sports programs that are being run by Muslim women, which I think are important and they're growing. And those are the ones, like if I had a kid, daughter, I would definitely encourage them to take part in that. And, but as you mentioned, yes, like there is this conversation around co-ed sports. There has been research done in the UK and Norway um, and Denmark where that's what was said. It was like a lot of girls, they didn't want to be in co-ed spaces. And this was nothing to do with religion and culture and it had everything to do with the male dominance, boy dominance in the sport. So they were like, I'm not going to play if it's going to be co-ed, so give me something else. But then a lot of people just attributed to culture and religion and not really acknowledging that's what was happening. But that's awesome that she's taking up rock climbing. I've seen a great shift of it. Like here in the U.S. and I think globally, there's, they've created spaces for BIPOC communities to access these sports that have been run of mainly men and catered to a lot of white communities. So here in Colorado, I, uh, I also rock climb and we host an event once a month where they bring in BIPOC community and create a safe space to engage with rock climbing and be supported and be a field seat. When I talk about representation, like it was nice to come into a space where I could look at someone be like, this one, this person looks like me. I feel part of a community. So that's awesome she's doing then. Hopefully she'll get into basketball again. Yeah, I would I would love it yeah. if she'd play because it's something we could yeah. do together. Unfortunately, yeah. I don't I don't have the upper body strength for anything rock <laughs> rock climbing, but but she does. I mean, she's amazing yeah. at it. Uh, and I think her dream is to one day get on American Ninja Warrior. So I might have to build her a practice course. Exactly, and I don't know if you know there was a Muslim woman. Um, she's from California. Her name is Sarah Madal, if I'm correct. Like she has, she's park, she's a parkour athlete and she also competes and she does karate, mixed martial arts as well. She was featured in or took part in American Ninja Warrior, I think three years ago. I can't remember the date. And then there's been a few other Muslim women that have been in these like other like high intensity events. Like they've been present there. They're getting there and it's awesome to see. So on that point, what would you say would be your, say, top two or three policy changes that you would bring in if you were the commissioner of sport in in charge of addressing this issue? Yeah. um, So, of course, I'm going to always look at context, right, of the country, of what's happening. But I think the first important thing is for organizations that offer, say, sporting opportunities or work with Muslim communities, whatnot, is to kind of look internal 
to look at their board, look at who's leading these initiatives. Is it representative of the communities on the ground? And I'm not saying just have one token Muslim woman, like that's not going to do it. You need to make sure that their diverse voices are represented and also to examine policies within the organization. As I mentioned, of course, I don't want to go back on the hijab, but a lot of people, when they look at policies, the line isn't clear. So make a clear statement saying everyone's really included in taking part in sports, regardless of your religion, your ethnicity, your race, really, really included. And then cultural training, because I think there's a lack of that. There's a lack of cultural understanding. And a lot of people end up focusing on the hijab, focusing on certain issues of certain communities. And it's more than that. So I think people really need to have cultural training in a safe environment because I'll go to an example, going back to an example of the research I'd conducted with my team in Aotearoa, New Zealand. We created a safe space for both the sports facilitators who work with diverse groups of communities, especially Muslim women, along with Muslim women. And the important of the research was we had both parties represented in there. And I, as a group, my team as a group, we wanted to create a space. So we held a one-day hui, which is it means a session, a workshop for the community to come together to be open. And what I encourage them to do is be uncomfortable in sense of acknowledging your stereotype because it was a safe space. And that's what happened. People said, okay, I have this stereotype and hijab came up. And he's like, okay, I'll do better of really including the voices of Muslim. And the recent accomplishment, I could say, because when we do research, we don't always see the benefits of it right away or it takes time. It could take five, 10 years. One of the sports facilitators who works with Muslim women on the ground, they were able to make netball, which is prominent in New Zealand is they change policies to be more inclusive around clothing. So it wasn't just the hijab, but as I mentioned, there's some Muslim women that want to dress modestly or women just in general want to be a little modest. And I don't know if you're familiar with net netball uniform. They're a little, they're short. <laughs> there's a lot more skin showing, right? Mm-hmm. So they were able to overturn that working with the local sports organization. But this was all conversations they had with different community members of different voices present. So it's policies, cultural training, and then for organizations to look within themselves saying, what are they actually doing wrong? They can't say like, our, our programs work, but I'm like, clearly there's still issues going on. You need to be more diverse. You need to include diverse voices because that's where change will really come when you listen to what the community is actually saying instead of, you know, include them in the conversation, allow them to influence policy instead of the policy coming from top. Thank you for listening to Muslim in Moderation. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and give it a rating. A new episode will be out monthly. For guest profiles, episodes and show notes, visit www.muslimInmoderation.com.